Welcome to Hope Beyond the Badge, a podcast that brings awareness, inspiration, and conversation together for first responders, families, and others interested in mental well-being in first response. New episodes weekly with your hosts, Jay Bailey and Linda Kokoros. Jay is a father, a military veteran, worked in the fire service for 18 years, and carries a diagnosis of PTSD. Linda is a mom, a wife, a certified life coach for first responders, and a suicide loss survivor of a first responder. Let's talk about it. Today we have Jonathan Hickory joining us on the podcast. Jonathan authored the book, Break Every Chain, which is a story about a police officer's battle with alcoholism, depression, devastating loss, and the true story of how God changed his life. Dean Kane calls the book an inspirational biographical drama that captures the horrors and hardships that first responders face and gives true hope for anyone struggling to overcome the trauma that imprisons the minds of so many. The book Break Every Chain is about Jonathan's life, and was eventually turned into a movie. Uh, Jonathan, Linda, and I are both very excited to speak with you today about your book, about your life, and hear your other thoughts on trauma and first response. So uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself and and take us through your journey, man. Sure, absolutely. Well, first of all, uh, thank you guys. It's my pleasure uh, to be on on your podcast and um, just so thankful for your service, uh, your, your service, your family's service, and just for all that you guys are doing to, to help other first responders and, and veterans. So, um, yeah, about me, uh, well, let's see, I, I, I am a police sergeant, uh, in Virginia and I have been on the job this, this year will be 20 years. Um, so, uh, kind of starting to get towards the end of the tunnel i guess i don't know see the light at the end of the tunnel but got about six years left until i can retire um and uh in my career i have uh done every shift but i also spent seven years uh doing fatal crash reconstruction uh and i also uh, was a motor officer for for three years. I mean, once he's once a motor officer, always a motor officer. But I'm not riding every day right now. So um, that's a little bit about my career. Um, I am a father, and I will tell you more about my family soon. But I'm, I'm also married. I've been married. Just celebrated our 19th anniversary. Uh, yeah, happy so. anniversary! I wish you a happy anniversary on your Facebook page today. Thank you yesterday. so much. Yeah. <laughs> I got a grill for my anniversary present. Um, so that was really cool. Uh, cause all the other ones I have are like rotted out, you know how that happens. And, uh, I think I gave my wife, uh, like a picture I bought off of Amazon. So I think I'm in the hole there a little bit. I think I, I need to get her something better, but no, she got a good mother's day gift too. So, um, but yeah, no life is wonderful for me now. Uh, but for many, many years I struggled. Uh, and you know, I don't know how you're going to proceed with asking me questions, but you know, just for years, um, I struggled with, uh, the effects of depression and post-traumatic stress from the job, but it wasn't just from the job. It was also cumulative, uh, post-traumatic stress from childhood trauma that was never resolved until I was probably about 35 years old. Uh, so about eight years ago. And, uh, you know, I, I came into the job with um, no substance abuse problems at all. But uh, once I started, once the newness of being a police officer and, you know, you, when you become a cop, like um, everything's awesome. Everything's the coolest. It You want to go get the bad guys. Do you want to, you know, I'm sure Jay can relate, you know, you're excited about the job. You know, I'm sure Linda, you can relate, you know, with, uh, with your son. With Alex, yeah. 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 So with, with your son, you know, at first it's amazing. It's everything is the best, 
Uh, every call is the most exciting thing that you've ever been on. And it's just like cops. It's just like live PD and just all the stuff you ever wanted to do, get to drive fast and turn on the blue lights and <laughs> uh, can't wait till the tone drops and you have to go priority to a call. But uh, after a couple of years, of course, that starts to wear off and the heaviness of the job starts to set in uh, the stuff that we are exposed to as first responders the stuff that's not glorified, you know, uh, on television, uh, the substance abuse, the exposure to, um, you know, people being beaten, being abused, being sexually abused, children being sexually abused, the death of infants, uh, suicides, homicides, you know, all this stuff, yeah. the stuff that, you know, really weighs heavy on you, that stuff started to really take its toll. And, with, uh, you know, I lost my father when I was 12 years old. Uh, he was only 49, and I, I basically watched him pass away from cancer uh, over 13 months. And as that happened, as a child, you know, around 12, 11, 12 years old, you know, at least for me, that was the time where I, I wasn't really afraid of my dad so much any for, anymore, and, and I was actually starting to form a relationship with him. Yeah. Um, you know, he was starting to buy me cool stuff like uh, a bow and arrow and, you know, let me uh, drive the lawnmower and mow the lawn and, you know, like things <laughs> yeah. that, you know, you feel proud that you have yeah. this relationship with your dad. And that was just all completely taken away from me um, when he, you know, when he got sick. Um, and so, you know, I just remember after he passed away, the anger that settled into my heart. And that anger, you know, was not something, I mean, kids always have issues, right? But I never had anger problems prior to that. And I just remember this anger that I felt towards everything and everyone towards the world for, um, you know, not being a better place towards myself for not being a better son, you know, who thinks that when they're 13 years old or 12 yeah. years old? Uh, you know, I was angry at God. I believed in God and I prayed every night that he would save my dad. And I was angry that he didn't. So, you know, that was not a good way to start off my faith relationship. Um, and so as I became, an, you know, a young man and through my teenage years, uh, it's it's a miracle I didn't end up in juvenile detention um, just with some of the things that I used to do and the way that my anger would come out through my driving and, and things. Um, but this carried with me and in, in later into life. And as I became a police officer, uh, the anger was still there. And so that's certainly a bad combination. You know, you don't, can't have an angry officer. Um, you can't take things personally. Um, but yeah, substance abuse started. Uh, about two years in, maybe a little bit longer, uh, as I, all these traumatic experiences, um, I, I wasn't going to go talk to anybody about it. I certainly wasn't going to do that. You know, we, as police officers, as firefighters, as soldiers, you know, we are, we're the fixers. We are the ones that go out and take care of everyone else. And we are seen as this, these strong beings that you know cannot fall and you know that stuff just rolls off our back yeah um it's it's very unrealistic you know yeah. so I, I feel like i've been rambling for a moment so i'm gonna i'm gonna stop talking for a minute no yeah no i i totally understand that about i mean i can understand relate with that as a fixer um being the fixer in my home but uh you know i wanted to just have to chime in there a little bit when you said you know well, I wasn't going to talk about that um, after two years of, you know, being on the job and then sort of the 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 new, you know, fun excitement that had initially started when you when you became a new police officer, you know, had sort of diminished a little bit because of the toll it, it was taking on you. But were you afraid? Were you afraid to talk about it in, in your department amongst anybody else? I, this, is anyone else struggling with me or is it only me or did yeah, you notice it I, I believe that's the the kind of thoughts that went through my mind a lot uh especially as i started to turn to the bottle more and more as a way of coping with it mm. uh you know alcohol is very socially and culturally accepted in in firefighting law enforcement um and even the military world and so it's seen as an acceptable way of uh, dealing with your stress and so, um, 
you know, as I started turning towards that, uh, I was wondering, you know, is it me? Am, am I the only one that screwed up or, you know, or, or, or are we it, all <laughs> right? Right. Are we all but, screwed up? <laughs> but I think more than anything, I really believe that I was the only one. I really yeah. believe that I'm the one that's broken. Everyone else seems to be doing just fine. Mm. And just like the rest of my life is broken because I lost my dad when I was 12. I'm the screwed up one and I can't hack it because mm. there's a piece missing in my life. Mm. So I just need to suck it up, you know, uh, cause that always works so well and, uh, and drive on. But did you know, did you realize it at the time that what was happening, you know, turning to alcohol, did you realize at the time that it, it was because of the trauma of losing your dad? You didn't realize no. it. Oh, no, okay. Uh, wow. Not at all. So that had to be, that had to be hard. Like how, how are you able to process like what the heck is going on with me? Like, why am I so screwed up in that time? You know what I mean? (laughs) Don't we we all wish that that was something we could could, uh, process? So, but like I said, you know, I never had a substance abuse problem before. I did drink some in high school and probably got out of hand a few times. Uh, I really liked it when I did drink. Mm. Uh, I know that. So maybe the addictive personality, but you know, once I met my wife, um, Stacy, uh, like I was like, I felt like my, my life finally had some purpose. Like maybe I had a chance at a normal life, even though I had flunked out of college and, you know, I, I mean, I went back and fixed that later, but, um, I, uh, it was just a sign of my depression, you know, the, the battle that I had in my teenage years and in, in get, getting out of high school, yeah. um, with depression that I didn't know it wasn't diagnosed, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, I never faced the death of my father with a counselor. Um, and so I think that's very important to mention because if you have things that, uh, that happened to you in your childhood, uh, it doesn't have to be the, the loss of, of a parent, but mm-hmm. let's say your parents divorced, or let's say you had an abusive parent. Let's say you had, you were sexually abused when you were a child, mm-hmm. you know, let's say um, you're, one of your parents was a narcissist, you know, these are all things that are very traumatic to children. And so if you, as we go through life, we carry this stuff with us. And if we don't face it with a counselor at some point, it just gets, we carry it in a heavier, heavier way. And other things just stack on top of it the older we get. Yeah, it's very, very, very important that you did mention that, Jonathan. It is very important to be able to deal with those type of things very earlier on to help recognize what is the root of the problem that's going on here that's manifesting all through my life, you know? Yeah, well, there's a lot of first responders actually have childhood trauma. And um, there's been studies done on this, uh, but a lot of this is my own personal thoughts. But uh, if you think about it, um, people that have broken lives, broken childhoods, broken parts of them that, that they wish were were different, um uh, they try, often try to fix the broken in others. Mm-hmm. And that's why we get into being a first responder because being a police officer, being a firefighter, being a soldier, you know, like these types of things are uh, being a dispatcher. Like we don't want to leave them out because no. they hear it all and, and they are right there on the front lines yeah. with us and corrections, you know, but um, it's these folks, a lot of them have, have experienced their own trauma and they're trying to like fix the broken in others before they fix the broken in their own selves, you know? So I just, that's a little theory I have, but um, I think there's a lot of truth to it. Yeah. I think that also when they try to fix others, there's a feeling that while they're fixing others, they're also going to be able to fix themselves at the same time. Um, yes. And they come up with some sort of solution. Oh, I'm, I'm fixing this person. So I'm going to be able to fix myself. And it's not true. Um, you know, doesn't it doesn't work that way? Yes, and mostly. I, well, uh, and it also comes out in our relationships. Yeah. So you know, some of the first uh, several relationships that I had as a young man with with young ladies were uh, I was always attracted to the screwed up ones. And uh, <laughs> no offense to anyone, uh, but I always felt like I could see that they were probably not the greatest. You know. Uh, came from some rocky backgrounds, maybe had some issues, but I'm like, Oh, I can fix that. You know, and you can't, you can't. Yeah. So yeah, it's just, when I started uh, to date my, my wife, Stacy, uh, I was like, 
well, this is different. Like she's, uh, she's actually normal and she came from a good home and, you know, she's, uh, you know, raising the church and just an amazing, uh, light in the world. And I'm like, what's wrong with this picture? I'm not used to this. Yeah. I, I, I remember reading in the book that when you did, um, you, you did meet her, um, you, she was the most beautiful woman that you'd ever saw in your life. And, um, tell us a little bit more about her. Oh, Stacy's wonderful. She is a God appointed for her, her for me. I have no, I, no, no doubt of that in my mind. Uh, she, uh, she's just an amazing woman. She is a wonderful mother. She was a public school teacher for 12 years. She now teaches, uh, actually at my kid's school, she teaches at a private school, um, and she teaches math. So that alone is like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I don't know about <laughs> yeah. you guys, not my favorite. Um, but she just, uh, you know, she's, she tells it like it is. Um, sometimes, you know, we need that. Yeah. Uh, but she's, uh, she's just beautiful in, in every way inside and out. And so she's definitely what I needed and she's the rock. Like when I, um, as my my life as a first responder, as I turned to alcohol more and more, and our marriage started falling apart, and I became this bitter, bitter and cynical, you know, horrible person. Uh, as I became, you know, a father that that wasn't the greatest, and as I just failed at everything except being a cop. By the way, I was great at that, and I still am great at that. But like, that was my only identity. You know, the family life always came second at that mm. time. And so like, she was always a rock. And when we went through something extremely, extremely difficult, which is the loss of uh, our second child, um, late in the pregnancy, uh, that was something that destroyed me. Uh, and instead, uh, you know, she started going back to church at that time, you know, for mm. many months, and I refused to go. So she was always the rock of faith. You know, she, uh, her, the grace that she has shown me, the forgiveness that she has shown me um, for the things that I uh, have done to her uh, before I changed who I was, mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't deserve her at all. I know that. And so I'm so thankful for her grace. Uh, and, you know, every day I try to uh, appreciate her and kind of live like she's on a pedestal because really she is. I mean, I don't deserve to have her grace. That's awesome. I love that you're saying that. Chime in? Well, um, yeah, I do. Um, you talk about suffering, and I'm wondering about how you got to help. Uh, I mean, I, I, I do know from reading the book, but I guess I want to talk about that, that phase a little bit. Was it crisis? Was it internal turmoil? What led you to, to reach out to help and, and share a little about that process? Uh. Well, it was not, it was not something that it took me to get to the very rock bottom before I would get help. And even then I didn't raise my hand and say, I need help. Yeah. Um, what happened was, uh, you know, over the years I began to abuse alcohol and pretty soon it was to the point where I had to drink every night. Um, I was a functioning alcoholic. So I somehow thought of myself in an elevated status above any other alcoholic because I would never drink and drive because uh, I knew if I ever got caught doing that, it would be my job. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also didn't want to endanger others. Right. Uh, but I also wouldn't ever like, you know, come into work with alcohol in my system, you know, so I was very good at hiding it. Um, mm. You know what? Uh, got to the point where, you know, and I think I wrote about this in the book, you know, I, I would have a cup, maybe a beer or two that my wife would see in the trash the next morning. Uh, but she wouldn't know about, you know, the fifth of liquor I had hidden somewhere that I'd hit really hard as well, or yeah. the entire bottle of wine that I'd also drank yeah. and hidden somewhere. Yeah. So, you know, if these, if you're hiding alcohol, if you're hiding something, you know, that's a sign of a problem. Um, if you're going on Google and saying, how many drinks a day before I become an alcoholic? Well, you, you're, That's already the there, <laughs> you're already there. Yeah. I guarantee it. You know, and I can say that because I did those things. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't, you know, it's not like I set out one day and like, you know, I really want to be an alcoholic when I grow up, you know, like it's not something we strive to do. You know, no one wants to become 
bound in the chains of addiction. Um, but it once the alcohol got its claws in me, um, I could not get them out. Mm-hmm. And no matter what I did, when my my daughter was born in 2009, um, I wanted to be the best father ever uh, because I lost my dad. And, you know, I, I'm like, I got to quit this drinking thing. By that time, I'd probably been uh, had a problem for two or three years. And uh, so I tried to quit and I started like running 5Ks and doing other things to to try to deal with the stress. So, um, you know, I, I was, but I couldn't, I, you know, every, all it takes is one bad day at work and you're like right back into it. And so, you know, a functioning alco- alcoholic, I was a bitter person, uh, a horrible person and a monster really is what I was becoming. It was so bad that in, um, well, for, in 2013, we lost our, our second child and I was already in such a dark place, such a hopeless place. I'd been um, a fatal crash reconstruction officer for about four years at that time. And uh, I just, it was all I did was work death scenes. It seemed like, and I was so terrified that I was going to get killed or my family was going to be killed in a fatal crash because it's all I was exposed to all the time. Uh, And I wasn't talking to anybody about it. I wasn't letting that go in any way. I was just holding on to it. Um, and so, uh, you know, work some really hard stuff at, at work, but, uh, when we lost our, our, what turned out to be our firstborn son, um, that destroyed me. Mm-hmm. I was already in such a horrible, dark place with no relationship with God, no faith, no coping mechanisms that were healthy. Um, and when we lost that child, like I love babies and they bring me such joy. Um, it broke me it brought me to a place of darkness that I, that I have never known before. And, uh, when, when we lost that child, um, it happened at home on a Sunday, uh, in our, in our master bathroom. Um, I just remember, uh, there was a, a deputy that came out in the County we live in. He had heard it on the scanner as a rescue call, call, but he came out cause he heard our name and address uh, and I'm standing outside with him because I couldn't face the scene. And I'm such a, you know, I feel like I'm such a coward because I can't face it. And, you know, she's my wife's being attended to by rescue personnel. But um, the deputy's just standing with me out in our garage and in the dark, in the darkness. And he's got, he actually embraced me. He, he we, I was hugging him and that was weird. <laughs> and I remember feeling that cardboard stiffness, stiffness of his bulletproof his vest. vest. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm like, what am I doing? And then I'm just sobbing. And he's like, you're tough, man. You're, you're the toughest guy. I know you're tough. You're going to be, you're going to be okay. You're going to get through this. And man, I'm like, I don't want to be tough anymore. I'm just so done being tough. You know, I just want to cry. Um, I just am done. And so after that, you know, I took up a couple of weeks off from work, you know, busied myself with home improvement projects, not that I'm really good at that kind of thing, but, you know, <laughs> painting and whatever I could handle. And that helped a little bit, but, you know, I, I, then I went back to work and it's just like, I did, I refused to face it. I refused to go talk to anybody about it. And then weird things started happening. Like I started uh, relating the death to my wife, which is not fair to her at all, you know, but these, this is post-traumatic stress. This is what it does to the brain. You know, if you do not face these things with, professionals, then you make your own conclusions. You process it the way your brain processes it. And so I'm associating my wife with the death of a child. And that is not a healthy thing. You know, so it just got worse and worse and worse. And 18 months of spiraling downward uh, followed where I refused to get help. I drank super heavy. Um, Affairs started. um, Reckless behavior started where I would go to any call I would go, I could not even sometimes, you know, off duty, not wearing a vest, no backup, you know, gun, man with a gun, you know, just stupid behavior. Just and reckless. Um, like, like reckless. reckless. Yeah. Cause I didn't care if I lived or died. And oh. uh, that's a bad place for, for somebody that's got a, a gun in their holster to be. Yeah. Uh, and, but in the meantime, I chased my career hard. I worked harder than I've ever worked before, you know, and, um, you know, I was recognized 
for officer of the year in a 150 plus officer department, you know, and this is not to gloat, but it's to show you how good, you know, that, that first responders can be at hiding themselves with this identity of I'm a cop, I'm a firefighter and nothing else matters. Um, and so what that led to was, as I mentioned, you know, infidelity, um, internal affairs for the first time in my career, I was marching to IAA. Uh, you know, I, we had just come back from Disney world, which I almost didn't even go to Disney world. If you, you read the book, recently, I read the book so yeah. we there. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to go to Disney because, you know, I, I was afraid that uh, Mickey wouldn't be able to serve me a drink, you know, like I was afraid <laughs> that I wouldn't be able to support my alcohol habit. Like meanwhile, my five-year-old daughter's in full on princess mode knows, you know, Cinderella and beauty and Ariel and all them. And I'm going to cop out on, on the Disney vacation my wife saved up for so I can support my drinking habit, you know? So a glimpse into who I was at that time. Um, But we get back from Disney world uh, and uh, march into the internal affairs office. And if you've seen the movie, it was very, very real to the, to the, to the movie. Um, uh, The digital voice recorder, I want to say tape recorder, but we all know that's not used anymore. Uh, was plopped down and they turned it on and they said, you know, you're being charged with, you're being investigated for conduct and becoming of an officer and you're not, you know, you need to turn in your laptop and your phone and um, all give us the passcodes and everything. And I'm like, my heart's, you know, it's like the principal's office times 10 billion, you know, like yeah. I'd never been there before in my entire career. And I was probably 13 years in at that time uh, or 12. Um and so I was scared to death and uh, they told me I could go home early. I wasn't to discuss it with anyone. I definitely wasn't going to discuss it with my wife. I know that. Um, and I got home and no one was home. Uh, you know, I'm home. my wife's at work. My daughter's in kindergarten or childcare or whatever it was at the time. And, um, you know, that was the moment that uh, the house was so quiet. The gun was right there. And this voice in my head was like, end it all end it all, you know, like you're, you're done. You're going to lose your job. I had looked up the offense, um, in the discipline matrix on the way home. And, uh, yeah, you get really good at learning those policies when, when they matter. Um, and it went all the way to termination and I'm like, that's it. I'm, you know, I'm going to lose my job. I'll never be able to work as a cop again. My, my whole identity, I'm going to lose it. My wife is going to find out I'm going to lose her and my daughter is going with my wife. So I'm going to lose her. So I'm losing everything in my life that matters. And Mm -hmm. so why should I continue to live? Mm -hmm. And, um, that was the moment that, that I saw this vision of fire. I can't explain it, but, and that was what it took for me to pump the brakes and say, like, if you do this, um, you know, you're not getting a second chance. Definitely. Um, so I still was, uh, really struggling, but, Sorry, I thought you were going to say something, Linda. No, I'm okay. Um, are you all right? Yeah, I'm okay. Um, so, you know, if I went back to work uh, shortly after that, uh, after that moment, that battle for my soul. And um, it was the scariest thing, you know, because those thoughts are something I've never thought before in my whole life. So to think those thoughts, it's like, where does that come from? You know, um, it's a place of extreme pain. You know, and and so uh, I know that this is hard for you to talk about, Linda, as a oh, survivor. It's, it's okay. Yeah, but it's just um, relate with it. You know, your the thoughts that possibly would have been going through Alex's head at the time. Yeah, you know what I mean. I've, it's hard yeah. stuff to go. It's hard, and you have to realize that anyone that's thinking those thoughts is not in a in a place they would normally be, not in a clear, rational space of thought, and just in so much pain that it just seems like a good idea at the time. Mm. And so all it takes is that moment. Um, and so I'm so thankful that, that at that moment I'd said, you know, okay, God, like I'm done, obviously I'm doing so well on my own. Uh, but I, I surrender, like I give it to you, but, uh, you know, that didn't happen overnight, but, um, you know, it was something where I went to work, um, soon thereafter and, it took two months to get through this investigation. 
I lost like 20 pounds from the stress and I'm not really a, like a big guy as it is, you know? Um, but I, uh, I remember like I went in in one of the early days, uh, to my commanding Lieutenant, uh, Mike Wagner, he's now a chief in North Carolina. And, um, I went to Mike and I said like, or to the Lieutenant and I said, Lieutenant, like, what do I do? And he knew about the investigation. He didn't know all, all the details yet. He would definitely find out later. Um, but he, uh, he's like, are you hurting? Like, you know, and I'm like, looking. at him like, well, how am I supposed to answer that? Like, I don't yeah. want to say yes, yeah. you know? Um, so I just kind of deer in the headlights, you know, and looking back at him, he said, come into my office. And so we step into his office, he shuts the door. Uh, and he's, he says, hang on just a second. And he gets our department psychologist on the phone and not every department has one of these. Okay. So we have somebody on contract, but he was never a blip in my mind before this moment, because who's going to go talk to that wacko, you know, who's going to go talk to the quack. Who's going to go even be seen like, that's a, that's just. A, it's a, a no, career, no. I can see you. I can see a, a visual killer. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, I'm waving my hands. No, yeah. because <laughs> you don't want to be associated with that in this line of work, or at least that's I, the stigma. That, that's the stigma. That's the stigma. You, your own pride gets in the way of getting the help you need because yeah. you're afraid that you're going to be seen as weak. Yeah. And so that, that's where I was. And the Lieutenant said, you need to go make an appointment with this guy. Um, and the doc, the, well, he calls himself the cop doc. The cop doc said, um, this doctor, Dr. Byron Greenberg, he said, uh, yeah, you know, come call, call me right in, you know, make an appointment with my office. I'll see you, you know, later this week. And so at that time, the burden fell from my shoulders. No longer did I have to make the decision. And so if you're a, a leader, um, you know, in first responder, the first responder world, if you're a leader in any capacity and you have someone who's struggling you know, make, make them go get the help they need. It might just might be the push they need oh. in the direction they need to go. I love um, that you're saying that. Yes. Uh, because now as, as a, as a, you know, new leader myself, I, I have to look for this in, in my, my guys, my squad, you know, and, and realize that, um, that other people are struggling, you know, um, but yeah, I started to go see the police psychologist and man, trust me, I did not want to talk to him at all. Uh, my arms were crossed and I'm like, nope, I'm, <laughs> I'm here, but nope. But I just broke down. I couldn't explain it. I was so done trying to be tough. And I'm like, what do I have to lose? You know, my job's already gone probably. Yeah. So what do I have to lose? You know? And so, uh, you know, I, I told him how numb I felt and I felt like I had no emotion. Meanwhile, there's tears rolling out out of my eyes and he's like, I see emotion. Like it's so, you know, so he humanized me in that moment. You know, he made me, he made me realize that it was okay to feel a little bit. Um, and he talked me off the ledge, you know, um, I had a long way to go, a long way to go. It's been a long journey. Mm. Was that the beginning for you? Was that the beginning for, for you to turn a corner to say it's all on the table now. Yeah. That was the beginning for me to start to let it go a little bit, to yeah. start letting out these bottled up emotions, traumas, stress, all this crap that I'd just been harboring in my own self, you know, in my own mind, in my own chest and my own heart mm-hmm. um, and not allowing myself to, uh, to let it out. And so it's almost like, uh, you know, I'm sure you guys have heard the backpack analogy or rucksack analogy that every trauma is like a rock, you know, the bigger the trauma, the bigger the rock that you throw in your rucksack. And if you don't have a a way to uh, disperse that weight, it's going to crush you eventually. Yeah. So that's what was happening. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, over the years, like, uh, there's been many things that have have uh, contributed to my healing. Uh, I went to, well, there's more to the story, of course, with the investigation, right? Did I lose my job? You know, what happened, right? Tell our um, listeners, did you lose your job? Well, obviously you didn't because you're still a police officer, right? Yes, yeah. yes. So, But Grace, they want to hear. 
Grace is my main. I should have a, a T-shirt that says Grace has, you know, because <laughs> there was Grace, and um, I was honest, and that's the main thing. If you get in trouble, there's a lot of things you can survive if yeah. you tell the truth. Yeah, you gotta tell the truth. You lie, you're done. Um, yeah. but I was honest, and it was very humbling, and sometimes that's a good thing, you know, yeah. um, to be humbled. Uh, but uh, about two months after the investigation started, I, I was uh, it came to a, to an end, and I was disciplined very heavily, but I didn't lose my job. And one of the things that uh, they did to discipline me was remove me from my um, my position as a fatal crash reconstruction officer and um, as a member of our traffic safety unit, and move me to midnight patrol, everybody's favorite shift, right? And some guys like it, so it's all good. But they said, oh, you're starting tomorrow night. You know, like, yeah. no time to plan. Here it is. You're going. And uh, so it it absolutely turned our family life uh, into upside down. But I, um, I thought maybe I wouldn't have to tell my wife. Good idea, right? Mm. Um, you know, I was trying to trust God. I was trying to, to do the right thing, trying to read my Bible, trying to go to church and do all the things that Christians are supposed to do, but I was not ready to, to really trust God with my life. And so I, uh, made, I made something up as to why I got moved to, uh, midnights. I, I deceived my wife, uh, yet again, uh, cause I knew that if she found out, like she would kill me. And mm-hmm. I was so afraid of what would happen. I did not want her to leave me. I did not. I mean, I, my life was already, you know, completely in a bad place. Mm-hmm. So, um, for about two months while I worked uh, midnight shift, uh, you know, I lived in this uncertainty. She's going to find out. And I can hear God telling me, just tell her, tell her you idiot. You need to tell her. And, uh, finally he just revealed it to her anyway. Um, and so God took care of it. Uh, yeah. and I had my chance, but I blew it. So we went into marital crisis And that's when um, our church helped us to find a faith-based counselor. They helped pay for the counselor, which was amazing uh, because, you know, a cop and a teacher, we didn't have that much. Um, And so, you know, my wife was super, super angry, of course, as she deserves to be. Um, I remember that night after she found out, we had like this intervention thing like you read about it you yep. saw it in the movie uh, at my mom's house and yep. um I, I wound up on the floor you know just begging for forgiveness and um it doesn't happen overnight um i remember that night uh i was not kicked out of the house because we had a five-year-old daughter um my wife didn't want her asking questions but i just remember hearing my wife i'm on the couch uh my new home at night and I had a bottle in my hand and I'm looking down at it and I can hear my wife weeping across the house. And, um, I just felt like the biggest piece of trash, you know? And I'm like, I did, I did this, you know, you're, you're such an, you're such a fool, you know? Uh, And I'm looking down at this bottle, like it's, this is a big part of it. And that's when I heard like God spoke to me and believe it or not, I heard a, a voice say, uh, Stop drinking and change your ways, or I will take everything from you. Mm. Uh, and that boy, my goosebumps, like I put that bottle down faster than it was on fire. Um, and I'm like, okay, God, like I hear you. This is, but I can't do it alone. Please, you know, I basically said a small prayer, like, please take this from me, yeah. take this from me. Um, and yes, I didn't sleep well that night because of the nightmare come true that day, but that happened um, with my wife finding out, but uh, but I never felt withdrawals after that. I woke up the next day and I told my wife about my hidden alcoholism of eight eight plus years. And uh, instead of being even more, I mean, she probably was more pissed at me, but instead of like just taking me out right there, she helped me get rid of alcohol in the house. She helped me, she became an accountability partner. She went behind the scenes and told people not to drink around me, like family members. And she stopped bringing home bottles of wine from the grocery store. Like, so she really like, yeah, I mean, she invested. Yeah. And uh, months later, uh, after many months of, of counseling, which by the way, I thought all this 
marriage counseling would be about the marriage. And it turned out to be all about me and how screwed up I, I was, you know, how <laughs> I had never faced like all this stuff. And I just remember the counselor, you know, the, the very, very first session, when you go to a counselor, they, they take lots of notes and you're like, Oh my gosh, are they ever going to stop writing down how, how screwed up I am. And I finally told, finished telling her everything all the way back to my dad, you know, dying when I was a kid. Yeah. And she just said, wow, I'm surprised you're doing as well as you are. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, there's worse. Like, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like that yeah. kind of made me feel good. Like I couldn't be worse, I guess. Yeah. So it really helped to start to face that stuff, but it was really hard too. I mean, that's facing your, your demons, facing your trauma is, is extremely, extremely hard but it's the only way to healing. And, yeah. um, and so I'm just so thankful that I took those steps and my wife was in there with me, like right by my side. Yeah. And, you know, so she eventually did forgive, you know, I think it took a longer time for me to forgive myself. Uh, it took me a couple of years before I would really start to forgive myself right. for some of the things to let go, like to really let go some of the, um, you know, the pain that you had, you know, put yourself through also, right? Um, yes. With the loss of your dad, but, um, you know, holding that all down and together and then manifesting into other pain, like, and, and using alcohol and all that other stuff to be able to, to numb that pain that you had. So, yeah, sort of letting go and releasing, right? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So... You know, now I'm in such a, like, I, I'm not perfect. You know, that's the first thing I'll tell you, but I am in such a much more healthy place. Um, and now I really try, I really, really try to lead a balanced life of, of resilience um, where uh, if there is a traumatic incident, you know, I know how to cope with it in a healthy way now. Yeah. Um, and I know to get help if, if I, if I get to that place mm. and I know how to stay on top of my depression, especially, um, seasonal depression. Like I suffer from that in the winter time and, uh, you know, really have to up the cardio, you know, for example, because I, it helps, you know, uh, exercise can help with depression. It's a, it gives you endorphins and, yep. um, you know, so there's, there's healthy, there's coping mechanisms out there. There's lots of them. Yeah. Drugs are a coping mechanism. Alcohol is a coping mechanism, you know, um, sex, you know, uh, abusing sex can be a coping mechanism and these are all unhealthy coping mechanisms. Yeah. So you have to find healthy ones. You have to, you have to have an identity outside of being a cop or being a firefighter. You have to have other identities and so that's where faith can really tie it all together. Like if you identify as a Christian, as a child of God, you know, um, as uh, a son of the king, you know, as they say, um, that really can help. And and also, you know, not don't delete your friends that aren't cops and firefighters. Like I think a lot of times we do that. Uh, I don't know about you, Jay, but like when I became a police officer, um, all my other friends were not good enough anymore. Uh, and they ask dumb questions, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> so like, uh, you know, it's very helpful to have friends because when you, that aren't cops, because when you have a problem or, you know, if you're hanging out with your friends off duty or, you know, whatever, um, it, the conversation always goes, goes where, if you're hanging out with other cops, where's the conversation going to go? Yeah. You know, it's, it's always going to go back. To, it's all going to work, go back right? to work. Yeah. Right back to the job, you know, yeah. so you can never get away from it. And let's say you are struggling. Let's say you are having a hard time. And, uh, you know, not every cop is the most empathetic person, yeah. you know, um, because we're automatically programmed when somebody starts set, telling us a sob story to be like, and I'm holding up a pen and paper, uh-huh, get to the point, you know, like skip the part about all your trauma and tell me what happened today, you know, like, yeah we want to just fix it and be like, Oh, well, you should just do this. And you know, it's so, I, a, it's so true. Protective order, right? Yeah. It's, it's so true, Jonathan, you know, like I, I saw you holding up the pen there and saying, yeah, let's skip the sub store, skip the sub story. And, uh, right. let's, let's get to it. Let's find a solution. Um, quick fix type of thing. And yeah, I totally can see that happening for sure. 
Yeah. Yeah, and I think you're contributing to the solution. I think uh, it's it's a very powerful example that you set uh, as a first responder, as a police officer, and, and as a leader in your department by sharing your story. Um, you made a lot of good points. One of the things that that struck me was when you spoke about being moved to uh, to night shifts, right, and, and having having your gig taken away and being put back in a patrol vehicle. Now, obviously, the department notices that, right, whatever, whatever chatter or HIPAA, however those interact in the conversation as well, uh, it's, it's noticed there's a disciplinary outcome for whatever, whatever crisis is going on. And uh, that's something that, that you, you obviously have spoken and written about, I, I'd say, boldly. And I know that when I was going through, you know, my own struggles and entering into my own crisis, I think that if there was less of a stigma and, and if, I, if I had a first responder, a man or woman of the personality type that we also spoke about earlier in the interview, that I had seen uh, go out and seek help and get well, uh, I'd like to think that that would have made it easier for me to do that. So with, with all that said, what I'm wondering is, if you've seen a, a change in, in the departmental culture or locally, if you've seen uh, a more willing culture in, in terms of, of mental health, emotional well-being, and the ability to reach out for help, is that something that you've seen shift or change? Yes, yes. So I believe that, I do believe that, I like to say that I think the winds of change are starting to blow, okay? Me too. But, yeah, but and I think there's more awareness now. I mean, obviously, like Blue Help started tracking police suicides about eight years ago. I think 2015 mm-hmm. or so. Yeah, um, that was the same time that that was the year I was dis- disciplined. That's the year I ended up in IA. You know, like I almost was a statistic that year, 2015. That was the year they started tracking it, and so we've found since there people are reporting them more. Now there's a place to send these numbers to. And you, you all know just as well as I do that uh, the numbers we're seeing that are tracked, that are reported are way lower than the actual numbers. Yes, right? absolutely. Because of, Only because reported. Of, yeah. Right. Because what family wants to admit to the shame, right? And it's, it's BS, right? So, but even that being said, we can see the past five plus years as we track this data, compare it to the line of duty deaths and suicides number one every time. Absolutely. Over everything. Yeah. Over everything. Yeah. I mean, the only other thing that's higher, it was COVID, you know, and it's like, so all of that to say that, that like, it is a huge problem. And as we, you know, as we champion awareness more and more, I think that um, it, this, Right now, I know that new recruits in our academy are getting, uh, you know, they're having their required reading Kevin Gilmartin's book, uh, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. They have to write a report on it. They have a at least a, a day of post-traumatic stress education. Um, so this was stuff that was never in the academy for us. And this is stuff that they are getting when they first come in now. Yeah. And will the long, I mean, they're in Superman phase right now. So who knows what the long-term effects will be, but that Kevin Gilmartin book has been around for a long time. And I was given a copy of that when I was brand new and I chucked it in the trash and I'm like, I don't need this garbage. <laughs> like, sorry, Kevin, uh, like that, that <laughs> book is great. Like, but but I was like, emotional survival for law enforcement. Or like, give me a bigger gun. Give me a break. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't need this. Good Lord. I need to just survive the streets. I could care less about my emotions right now. So, you know, I, I think that uh, I, that this is a new generation and uh, they're much more touchy-feely. And so I feel like, and they're, some of them seem more educated than I than I was. So I feel like, that's a good thing. And I feel like there is change happening. Um, but uh, there's a lot of the stig- stigma is alive and well, very alive and well. Yeah. Uh, our, our department recently, um, every year they do a, a motor a police motorcycle competition. And uh, every year they choose a, a nonprofit to benefit last year, they benefited um, um, the, the local chapter of uh, or Virginia chapter of blue help. Uh, this year, they're benefiting an organization that pays for first responders to get to treatment and therapy and rehab 
and mental health treatment if they have travel costs like flights and things. Oh, so lovely. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, it change is happening and we are living it right now. Yeah. yeah. So I think that, you know, although there is, you know, those new, you talked about the new recruits coming in, um, Jonathan, and that, you know, they're the, they're the ones that are going to feel a little bit more comfortable, you know, asking for help, right? Because there's no one at the moment influencing them, right? And they just came from the academy and they have all this um, training that they've had with mental health um, exposure, like teaching them. But there's also like the old guys that are in the department still. And, um, you know, these new guys could be under their wing and want to impress these new guys and they're going to show them the way. So there's always that, you know, are they going to really embrace, um, you know, this new era of, yeah, openly speak about, you know, how I really feeling or am I struggling after that last call um, that I that I just went on? Or are they are they going to blend in with the rest of the department that's that's there? So I think that. Yeah. And then. You know, there's always that sort of fear. Well, are they are they really going to embrace it, or are they going to stand up and and say no? This is not right. This is, but it also stems from the top. You know, the support and the administration in the department. You know, openly um, making it known to um, the officers um, that are there and in any of uh, departments in and all force response. That there is support. I think I also believe that if a, if a, a, an officer or a fireman saw um, a first responder or heard of a first responder um, seeking help um, within their department and they got the help needed, it would also make them believe that they're going to receive the same, right? And yes. there's also the opposite to that. So if a first responder hears, you know, someone else didn't get help, suck it up. Um, or go home and, and drink a bottle of whiskey or a pack of cigarettes or whatever that'll that'll help you. Um, they're also going to feel that they're they're going to um, receive that treatment too. So they're not going to ask for help. So it all depends on on you know what's happening in each individual department. Um, mm-hmm. I believe, and then um, it sort of stems from there. Um, who's who's going to be more comfortable um, being talking about it? But we, we just talked to a, a firefighter and his wife the other day. And, uh, you know, she had said one thing, you know, supporting her husband um, through his, his journey of healing. And it, it was, you know, she said, no, these first responders that are getting help, they're not weak. You know, she was saying it to an audience. And, and uh, she says, they're not weak. They're strong. They're strong. Yes. They're helping their families. They're, you know, they're, they're helping their marriage. They're, they're, they're getting help. They're the strong ones. Um, yes. so I just want to keep on saying that to our listeners that go and get help. Um, don't be afraid. Stand up. What's the worst yeah, they can, what's the worst they can call you? A wuss or whatever, um, or weak. Well, then who cares? You're getting help. You're better yeah, off. Meanwhile, your family is, is reaping the benefits and yeah. you're reaping benefits, right? Yeah. Who cares what, what people think? That's yeah. the thing. It's, it, you're so right. Uh, the people that get the help are the strongest. Yeah. They are the most courageous. They're the ones that are saying, you know what? I really don't care what you say about me. I'm going to get the help I need so I'm not screwed up anymore. And I'm yeah. going to get the help I need so that my family will, you know, will grow and will thrive. And I won't up, end up in a, you know, in a divorce or whatever, you know, yeah, uh, or worse. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. You, you were talking talking about going home, you know, the culture is, you know, suck it up and, and, or has been in the past, suck it up, go home and suck down some whiskey or a pack of cigarettes, you know, those unhealthy coping mechanisms. It's like a bandaid on a brain bleed. Yeah. You know, I I just was like, it's, it's a temporary solution to a, to a very much larger uh, problem. So, yeah. So I'm really excited about this time that we are living in now because, you know, I know that you are too as a, as a survivor and I know that yeah. you are too, Jay, as a survivor of, of post-traumatic being diagnosed, you know, uh, that, uh, you know, finally, like this stuff is is being acknowledged and it's about saving lives. Absolutely. Uh, the, the movie is, I know of a, a fire, uh, I think, she's a captain or something, but she's in, she's a leader, you know, she's a supervisor of some sort. And um, when her new recruits come in the door, she shows them the movie 
And I'm like, aren't you going to get, it's a, it's a faith-based film. Are you going to get in trouble? And it's like, just ignore that part because, you know, there's a message. Yeah. You don't have to have, you know, belief in God, you you know, you can, you can still survive this, this, like this career without it, but it's a lot easier for me having, having, having faith. And I'll tell you briefly what really helps about having faith is we are control freaks um firefighters cops first responders dispatchers we want to be able to control that scene you know i'm in who's in command right you know the ics right so we want to be able to be in control of that scene and everything comes our way we want to be able to manipulate it control it put it in a box this is what it is so how we're going to handle it and in one hour or less you know depending on how long the medical examiner or you know or the coroner takes you know we can have it handled but you know, how do you, you can't explain everything. You can't have control over an 11 year old that hangs themselves and their mother finds them. And you got to deal with that. You know, like yeah. these are the things that you cannot make any sense out of. And when you believe that there is a higher power and that, that, that ultimate control is above your pay grade, then that takes all the weight off of you. Yeah. You know, you don't have to figure it out anymore. Yeah. And even bad things that happen that there's a reason for it. Yeah. You know, so that's what, that's where faith comes in for me, especially to help survive this career. Well, it comes in for me too, to help survive a loss of a, of a first responder and other traumatic events. I've got, I remember, you know, within a year after losing Alex, um, you know, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, um, within that same year. And then I, two weeks after, you know, going through a lumpectomy and, and to get rid of the cancer, um, I was called home to, my dad was being put on palliative care and my dad passed away. So um, that was all in, in one year. Um, so guess what? I would not have been able to get through um, these last um, five years without God in my life. So I, I appreciate yeah. um, you saying that too. Yeah, amen. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's just a glimpse into your life. Wow, we have to talk more. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, Jonathan, it's been the pleasure um of having you on tonight. I know you're you have time restraints and everything. It's been a pleasure listening to you talking, and I could listen to you all night. I know the whole story of Break Every Chain is the name of the book. It's also a move movie. It has over two million views on on YouTube. Um, and you do go around and. Um, in faith-based um, churches and halls and, and places like that and, and screen the movie, right? So yes. maybe maybe when if you're ever in Massachusetts, we can have a screening up here um, for How sure. How awesome would that be? Yeah, it would, it would be awesome. And um, But every, I think, if you're a police officer or a first responder or anyone who loves a first responder, um, I definitely feel they should read this book um, or go see the movie. But the book is definitely amazing. Um, I could relate with it a lot. Um, I know Jay could also, um, but it was absolutely fantastic. So thank you for coming on with us tonight and sharing with our listeners, um, you know, something of your perspective of being a first responder and going through sharing your struggles and your healing with all of them. Thank you. Yeah. No, my pleasure. Thank Thank you, you, Jonathan. Um, This conversation has been a pleasure. Strong work, brother. Thank you so much. It's all about saving lives. You guys know that. I know that's what you're all about. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. We're never going to stop.